electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza coming to you from CNBC's One Market in San Francisco, along with Julia Forston from Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Ahead of a big interview you do not want to miss with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. That's happening in just a few minutes. Uh, stock is up after those results. And don't think I forgot about you, Neelay Patel, editor-in-chief at The Verge, here for the hour to break down all of today's biggest movers, which include Bumble, Sonos, and Vacasa, all moving sharply, telling different stories about the American consumer. Inflation data coming in better than expected for the second day in a row. And that has the broader market jumping again. The Nasdaq is up about eight-tenths of a percent. Julia, how can we not start with Disney, though? So much to get to, but... Uh, it kind of feels like we've thought about streaming for so long as a technology play. Growth at any cost feels more like a media play these days. Um, you got to have your eye on profitability. That's certainly what we saw with those price hikes from Disney and a lot of the commentary there. That's right. Disney beating on the top line, bottom line, adding more subscribers than expected. They did lose more than anticipated when it came to that direct-to-consumer business. But the way they're addressing that, the fact that they have higher demand, they're raising prices. And this all fits into this new push to profitability. Morgan Stanley just put out a note saying this is streaming phase two. This is about bringing streaming into the profitable uh, the profitable era. And I think we're hearing this from a number of different CEOs. It wasn't just Bob Chapek. We also heard this echoed by David Zaslav as well. So, Neele, I'm curious what you think here. You know, we've talked so long about whether Netflix is a tech company or a media company. Now it's being valued more like a media company. It seems like all of these companies, including Disney, are thinking more practically about their streaming businesses and wanting to make sure it's not just about chasing growth, but also about profitability. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the combination of the growth we saw with the price hikes speaks to Disney's underlying confidence in their content. I don't know about you guys, season three of Bluey hit yesterday. My kid's (laughs) going to make me pay any amount of money to keep Disney Plus in our house so she can keep watching those episodes over and over again. That's Disney's strength. Even as, you know, phase four or five of the MCU has to come out and be successful, they've got that catalog. They're adding those shows. That product is incredibly sticky for families. Neela, I haven't watched Blue yet, but I am considering a trip down to where Julia is, a visit to Disneyland. The prices are insane, but I'm going to test out that elasticity and how much pricing power at least the theme parks had, which uh, played such an important part in this quarter. But I wonder, guys, and Julia, um, it's ironic that Disney now is focusing on profitability when the tech trade is now coming back around. And look, it got Disney to where it is right now. Total numbers surpassing that of Netflix in terms of subscribers. Um, Is it too early, especially when you look at the India story, giving up those cricket rights? Does that set Disney on a different path, you know, longer term? Well, I think we're just seeing sort of a readjustment about how Disney thinks about all this. I mean, as we've seen Netflix's valuation come down, 
Disney is building out its product. I mean, it started off intentionally with a very low price point for Disney+. Plus. They said it's not always going to be this inexpensive. We are going to be raising the prices as we add more content, and we've seen them do that. But when it comes to those sports rights, those expensive cricket rights, Bob Chapek made it pretty clear on the call last night that they gave up those rights because yeah. it just wasn't going to be worth it in terms of the value, in terms of being able to, to use it to draw or retain more of those hot star customers. But this is definitely something we're going to be talking to him about in that interview coming up because we want to understand his perspective on how much he's going to be willing to pay, not just for sports rights, but for content in general, as he focuses on profitability in a way that we really haven't heard yeah. Disney or any of these streamers be that focused on profitability for the direct-to-consumer business. Yeah, there's so much to get to. Nile, um, what did you make of the parks business? So obviously a lot more focus there. The volume, not necessarily back to pre-pandemic levels, but people are out there spending. It just feels like the Disney brand is so powerful, especially when you look at what happened at Six Flags, much more disappointing results. It's just not a Disney. People are going to pay for a Disney where they may not pay for our other theme parks as much as I would like to because it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> It's true. Although I will say, you know, there's rumbles that the park's experience, even against the higher cost of the tickets, is going down, right? Like, that's yeah. what Disney has to really manage. So it can raise prices, labor's hard to find, uh, supply chain issues for food and all that stuff is real for the parks uh, as, as much as anything else. And they've got to make sure that consumers are getting what they pay for for those higher prices. And that, I think that's the big danger on the horizon for the parks. The other thing I'll say about sports real quick, there's a massive realignment in sports all over the place. Disney has been way ahead of it because they've been managing the decline of ESPN mm -hmm. and those cable fees for such a long time. I think they're in a much better place than some of the other traditional networks. Yeah, but Nilay, just back to the back to the parks piece, is pretty notable that they have already rolled out so many price increases over the past several years and that now you see consumers spending more. Yes, the overall attendance may not be back to the 2019 levels, but there was a hint dropped or two on the call that they think they have pricing flexibility for the parks. Does that indicate that they think that they could yeah. ra raise prices even more? I mean, that's an interesting question as well, Dee. Yeah, we're going to take a deeper dive into Disney, into earnings overall. Today's better than expected inflation data, what that means for the broader markets. Let's bring in Wilmington Trust Head of Investment Strategy, Megan Shu. Uh, Megan, what did you make, first of all, of Disney? What does it tell us? It is such a big name in the market. It tells us so much um, about the streaming business, about the parks business, pre and post pandemic. What did you make of it? Yeah, well, I think what Disney uh, showed during earnings is that companies that have that brand power, that have that pricing power, can continue to pass along price increases. And this really kind of epitomizes one of the, the concerns we have, uh, you know, notwithstanding the improvement in the inflation data. But if demand is there from consumers, uh, companies like Disney, like Starbucks, Chipotle, you yeah. know, the number of companies that we've heard who think they still have pricing power could be willing to pass it through. So some of that core inflation could be stickier as we move mm -hmm. into the balance of the year. But, uh, you know, the consumer still has a good balance sheet, relatively speaking. We have seen lower income consumers taking on more credit. Um, but Disney has that brand power. Yeah. And as you say, because of that brand power, maybe Disney is kind of an anomaly here. We saw, look at other earnings like Sonos, right? And some of the chip makers, um, that demand pullback is being seen in some of these results. So, you know, I wonder how much you can actually read into the broader markets. Um, Megan, where do you think we are right now? We've been debating whether this is a bear market rally, but now the NASDAQ is in a new bull market. 
Yeah, well, what we saw this year was Thanks. really a sharp move in rates that caused a valuation adjustment for a lot of those higher valued companies. And then we started to move into questioning demand and earnings. Second quarter earnings showed that the demand is still there. Earnings are still solid, but um, you know we're, we're a little cautious. We're not sort of fighting the rally in the market and the technicals, they're certainly strong, um, but we're not buying here, we're not selling. We're fully invested, neutral to equities. Um, I just think going forward, we need to be really sensitive to how rapidly the environment is changing. We heard that in uh, really rapid change to guidance from Micron, from Walmart and Target mm-hmm. earlier in the year. And we're going to be getting retail next week um, from an earnings perspective. And I think there could be some more talk about inventories, building, um, and some weakness on the consumer side there. So I would say, you know, no, don't chase this rally. Be patient. Um, but we are staying invested in the market. Yeah. Yeah, Megan, as we look at these bigger picture inflationary pressures and still so so much economic uncertainty, I'm curious how you think about this concept of the pull forward. I mean, we saw Sonos disappoint, and it seems like a lot of that was due to the fact that people already invested in those devices for their home. There's only so much that they're going to be spending on those, and that really was pulled forward towards the pandemic. If you look at Netflix, what we've heard from them, and then even with Disney, the fact that they're domestic Disney Plus subscribers, that growth slowed dramatically. Do you think that all of these companies are or have seen a pull forward? And that means that as inflation increases or, or persists, we'll see growth continue to slow. Well, I think definitely we've seen some pull forward in consumer electronics, um, PCs. That's certainly getting baked into some of the chip guidance and some of the uh, earnings that we're getting from the semiconductor companies. I think going forward, I'd be focused on, you know, as it relates to tech and the semiconductor space specifically, those companies that are more aligned towards uh, cloud growth, towards data centers, towards those more structural trends. Autos are another great example. And just being a little bit more cautious on the consumer as it relates to consumer electronics, because I do think we had a big pull forward when it comes to goods. We're seeing that rotation into services that's helping companies like Disney and their earnings. Um, but you know, we're, we should expect goods to remain a little bit softer, except maybe if you're geared towards that enterprise type of business. Yeah, it's interesting. We're seeing this divergence between consumer and and enterprise. We heard that from IAC. And then we're also seeing divergence within the consumer um, and and the ability to spend there. um, Certainly higher end consumer holding up better. Um, As you look to the fall, are there any issues around supply chain constraints? I mean, you mentioned auto. Um, Auto, the chip sector, was so constrained um, by some of those infrastructural issues. What's your outlook on that now? Yeah, the semiconductor uh, supply chain has been a slow go uh, in terms of improvement. We've certainly seen pretty dramatic improvements in other parts of the supply chain. I would say we expect that to continue improving in part because demand for goods is softening. Uh, Labor continues to be a bit of a constraint, you know, even with a tight labor market, strong payroll numbers that we got in July, we're hearing that companies are still having trouble um, hiring. So there could be some stickiness to the supply chain disruptions. And then, of course, COVID um, and geopolitics pose a risk as well. So we are cautiously optimistic that the supply chains will resolve for you know tech and, and semiconductors. It might take a little bit longer towards the end of this year, early next year, but we think that is going to continue to improve. I want to follow real quick on cars. Uh, one of my pet peeves right now is companies keep announcing cars that aren't shipping forever and they just 
keep making the consumer wait and wait and wait. In the meantime, cars are getting way more expensive, right? We're, we're getting to a place where like the $100,000 car is like a normal reality. Do you think those companies are going to be able to weather this sort of short-term supply shock to get to those higher margin models that they've been promising forever? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to autos, we definitely have a lot of pent-up demand still. Um, and what's been muting demand um, and a lot of the sort of sales numbers for autos has really been more on the supply chain. Um, and again, we think that's going to continue to improve. What's driving up the cost is a lot of the uh, tech intensity, if you will, that goes into autos. So again, structural support for the chips um, and what goes into that auto experience that's so different from what it was 10 years ago. But, you know, certainly we've seen some price relief as it relates to autos in the last CPI report, uh, new and used autos coming off a little bit after really, really strong price increases in the past few months. Um, but going forward, I think that, you know, if you're at the top end, uh, as Julia mentioned, there's a bifurcation in the consumer. High-end yeah. consumer products are likely to remain uh, strong, whereas the lower-end consumer is going to be taking on more debt and might not be able to splurge for that mid-range auto. Yeah, and in the EV space, we've got Rivian reporting tonight. That'll be interesting. Megan Chu, thanks so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. We'll have more on the other tech results you may have missed after the break, plus a deep dive on Marketa with CEO Jason Gardner in his first broadcast interview since announcing a big shakeup in the C-suite. And Disney CEO Bob Chapek, that's later this hour. Stay with us. Tech Check is just getting started. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Let's get a gut check on Vacasa. As shares surge this morning, the vacation rental service posting a surprisingly profitable quarter and raised their full-year guidance above street estimates thanks to increasing demand in the space. Those shares up nearly 26%. This after strong results from competitors, Airbnb, Booking Holdings, and Expedia as well. It does seem like weakening consumers are nowhere in sight when it comes to travel. 
Yeah, even as costs are rising. I mean, we talked about this earlier, but the performance from some of these travel names, especially over the last month, have been incredible. I mean, Airbnb up nearly 30 percent. It's valued much higher than some of the other OTAs as well, like Booking Holdings and Expedia, Nile. Um, Vicasa, though, huge move up. It feels like the market is saying with these names in particular that the Fed is going to be able to engineer the soft landing. Yeah, it seems like it, but it also seems like all of that pent-up cash is now definitely going towards experiences instead of products, which is what we saw for the past two years. I also think there's a lot of people who moved out of cities in the pandemic who are moving back, and now they have the inventory of cool houses to go to, and that's playing a part in it. That's a good point. You want to go to the country for a weekend. Uh, Let's turn to... Um, Another earnings mover. It's heading the other way this morning, and that is Sonos. Shares uh, lower after posting a miss on the top and bottom line, slashing their guidance for the year as well. Uh, Blaming those results on, you guessed it, macro headwinds, including softening demand inflation and supply constraints. Guys, what a completely different picture here. We've talked about um, the consumer tech angle. Sonos, which, you know, has held up remarkably well, Nile against the tech giants that are kind of moving into this connected sound space, now having a hard time and losing its CFO to a time where you really need your CFO if your challenge is macro headwinds. Yeah, I'm going to cry for a minute here. I love Sonos. Um, CEO Patrick Spence, uh, uh, Chief Legal Officer, now acting CFO Eddie Lazarus, great executives are fighting a big battle against Google. That patent lawsuit just keeps raging. But what you're seeing is this is the opposite of the Vicasa story, right? Sonos's sales uh, of their soundbars come as an attach rate to new TV sales. You buy a new TV, you almost always buy a soundbar. Sonos was winning that game. It seems like all the TVs have been bought, right? Everybody upgraded their TV in the past two years. Now they're going to other people's houses in Vicasa. That's the big problem for Sonos. Yeah, I think all of these earnings we've been talking about today absolutely tie together. You have the fact that Sonos, they probably benefited from a pull forward during the pandemic. You have the fact that Vacasa probably introduced people to a new way to go on vacation during the pandemic. And that introduction has transitioned into just something that people now do instead of going to hotels, plus all that pent up demand. And then I think we're really seeing a transition, D, from buying objects into investing in experiences. Uh, And that's what Vacasa is about. And that's also what the huge numbers we saw out of Disney's parks were about there. And Sonos, like you can only buy so many of those devices, right? We've had hints of this, too, from the likes of Walmart and Target. The kind of stuff people are buying are more oriented to experiences. Um, Let's turn to fintech, though. We've got another earnings mover to hit. Shares of Marketa, they're getting crushed today. A cautious outlook overshadowing a strong quarter. The company announcing it has launched a search for a new CEO. Uh, Wall Street, not too thrilled about the news. Shares are down nearly 25%. Wells taking the name to neutral this morning on, quote, decreased visibility going forward. And all of this comes as investors await Marketa's contract renegotiation with Block, a company that counted for nearly 70% of net revenue in the second quarter. Joining us now to discuss at all, the current Marketa CEO, Jason Gardner. Uh, Jason, let's start with a change at the very top. What you announced, why now? Why step down now and hand over the reins to someone who you haven't selected yet? Well, hi, Deidre, and thank you for your continued interest in Marketa. Um, I am an entrepreneur. I'm a gold medalist entrepreneur. I built this company. I took it public. And I really thought about succession planning in this stage. And I feel there's a best person out there to be CEO. So I can actually focus on the things that I can contribute the most at, which is people products and customers. I'm not going anywhere. I'm the chairman, the CEO, the founder, and the largest shareholder in the company. 
I am here forever and I'm absolutely committed to the company and I'm excited about uh, what's what's next for me at the, at Marketo. Yeah, we look forward to, to hearing about it as well, Jason. When you look for a CEO, what are you looking for? Because up to this point, Marketo has been a fintech company, still is rather, but with a focus on technology. Where we are in the current market is sort of this greater emphasis on profitability and operation. So would you be looking for, you know, like a seasoned banking executive or someone from, say, the Bay Area who has more experience in technology? We're building a sustainably profitable company, and there's a lot of great executives out there. We decided we wanted to be completely transparent about our search because it allow us to attract, select, and hire the best person possible for this upcoming stage of growth. So there's a lot of great executives in payments and banking and technology and software. Uh, we really thought this was the best way to do it versus operating in secret. We wanted to get ahead of it. We want to be able to track people. So we're being very open about the search. It could take time. I'm in the seat uh, as CEO. Could be six months, could be a year. And uh, very much looking forward to talking to a lot of folks out in the world and, and see who would be the best person for this next stage. Jason, you're a disruptor. Marquette is a disruptor. A lot of your customers are also disruptors. Are you looking for someone who can bring you a more traditional customer base going forward, maybe stabilize some of the company? Well, our strategy has worked very well, so you're right. So we focused on commerce disruptors, digital banks, large tech giants, and now large financial institutions. We built an amazing culture here. We're an amazing business. We have a strong executive team. We want to be able to attract someone who can take it to even greater heights and we'll be very thoughtful about that search. So as we think about what's next, it's really who can take the company, its people, its products, its customers, along with me in partnership with me and take the company to even greater heights. And again, being transparent about it just allows us to have lots of open and wide conversations to attract the best person for the next stage. Jason, when you talk about your partners and, and you think about this next chapter of growth for the company, how important is it for um, your, your successor to focus on diversification? I mean, so much of your revenue comes through Block. Uh, and I'm wondering if you're concerned if that 69% of the revenue from Block is just too much and you really need to focus on diversification. We do. We need to focus on diversification. We've talked about this a lot. We have seen it gone down since even last year. We're very proud of our first half results. We're remaining cautious for the second half. And as we talked about in the past, certainly with Block, we are we're like a zipper. You know, the, both companies are very tied together. We power a lot of different products for them. They are very successful. We look to, to support that success, and we want them to be more successful while we're focusing on new verticals, large tech giants, large financial institutions, to really not only diversify the revenue base, but allow us to enter new verticals with new technology and new features, which really just expands our footprint throughout the world, whether it's fintechs or, or large tech giants or large financial institutions. We're really excited about the relationship and what's next for us. Yeah, well, no small job, uh, Jason. We look forward to seeing how that progresses. Maybe we'll talk to you next quarter. Maybe we'll be talking to someone else. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take it easy. And I'm live here at Disney headquarters. We will be joined by CEO Bob Chapek. That's next. Don't go away. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. 
because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Julia Borston and The Verge's Neelay Patel with us all hours. Guest host checking in on the NASDAQ two hours into trading. It is now the underperformer off its highs of the morning. It is still in the green, though, by about one-tenth of a percent. Uh, Julia has more on Disney with CEO Bob Chapek in just a moment. First, let's get a news update and get to Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Hey, thanks very much. Good morning. More evidence today that inflation is cooling. The government's producer price index, which measures inflation at the wholesale level, fell half a percent in July compared to June. It's the first month-over-month drop since April of 2020. And while still high, the annual increase of 9.8 percent is the smallest we've seen since October. Lower energy prices played a big role in this morning's data, and today the AAA reports that the national average for a gallon of regular gasoline is back below $4 for the first time in five months. And shares of Warby Parker are up 18% today after the eyeglass maker reported a smaller than expected quarterly loss, but it also cut its sales forecast for the year as it faces what a top executive calls an uncertain macroeconomic environment. Back over to you, Julia Deirdre. Thanks, Bertha. Now turning back to Disney, that stock's on the rise after beating on the top and bottom lines, driven in large part by resurgence in the company's parks business and an overall beat on Disney Plus subscribers. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive interview is Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Bob, thanks for, for joining us and also for having us here on your uh, on your beautiful campus. Nice to see you and glad to have you here. So, Bob, there's so much news uh, out of this quarter's results, but I want to start with streaming and the decision to raise prices and also introduce the new ad-supported Disney Plus at the same price as you're already charging. Many people thought it would cost less. Talk to us about this pricing strategy. Well, we had a great quarter overall. I mean, not only in streaming, but in our parks business as well. As you've seen, we had tremendous resilience uh, amongst all the fears of inflation and recession. Our parks business was extremely strong with a 40% increase in yield. So people are coming and they're spending more and they're very happy guests. But you're right, our, our streaming business has been really phenomenal. Uh, again, amongst many fears, we've gone ahead and added 15.5 million households for our streaming businesses, 14.4 of those on Disney+. Plus. And so I think we alleviated a lot of fears that maybe you know our growth was slowing down. But at the same time, we know there's a big focus on profitability, and we reaffirmed our guidance for profitability within 24, so uh, FY24. So we're really pleased about that, and I think it speaks to the difference that the Walt Disney Company has really versus our competitors in the marketplace. We're a much more diversified company, much more balanced, great brands, great franchises, and we're really bullish about the future. And I think that plays out. Uh, specifically to your question about the ad tier and the price increase. We thought that this was the perfect time to go ahead and really sort of bring up that price value equation so that we're more accurately reflecting the value uh, that a uh, guest or a consumer or viewer gets with Disney Plus by uh, taking up the price. Yeah, and, and you did add many more subscribers than expected in the quarter. But when it came to Disney Plus, subscriber growth for those domestic subscribers, which are in many ways the most valuable, certainly far more valuable than those hot star subscribers, that growth is slowing. 
Are you concerned in light of this, the con- contraction we've seen at Netflix and the fact that there is so much ma- uh, macroeconomic uncertainty plus inflation that subscribers in your highest value markets will not want to pay more uh, if they don't want to watch ads? So as we said yesterday in the call, we suspect that uh, we believe that we're going to see growth accelerate for domestic subs uh, for Disney Plus in the next quarter. So we believe that whether it's international growth, domestic growth, with ads, without ads, all across the board, we're going to see growth. So we're pretty bullish. But are you concerned that the growth is not coming from the most valuable subs? I know you're you're fo- very much focused on profitability, and it seems like in the streaming landscape, this is a relatively new thing to focus on the profitability over the growth. And I'm wondering, though, if you're concerned about where the growth is coming from now. Well, all of our core subs, as we now define them as of yesterday, to try to distinguish them from the lower value hot star subs, all of those subs are at a relatively similar value. And so whether it's domestic or international, we see growth across both, mm-hmm. but whether it's domestic or international is almost from an overall standpoint uh, uh, sort of uh, indifferent. Uh, but we do see growth uh, in domestic, and I think you'll, you'll see that next quarter. Well, yeah, you certainly said you thought that growth would accelerate next quarter. But I want to ask you about this hot star guidance. It was it, it was very interesting that you separated out hot star. Those subscribers are less valuable from the core Disney Plus. And you also said that hot star was not going to be growing as fast as you anticipated. And you talked about how that was because you weren't willing to make the investment in certain cricket rights. What is the calculation there? And how are you thinking about investment in content versus profitability of the service versus the number of subscribers you're going to be able to add? For the past several years, we've used our hurdle, if you will. It has to be a creative to shareholder value. And so we take it down to that level. And for every deal, whether it's NHL or NBA, MLB, college football or cricket, it always comes down to that. And uh, we do, obviously, a lot of analysis and figure out where we believe it uh, helps our shareholders. And if it doesn't, we do not do the deal. And that was one case where we did not do the deal. That cricket, that those cricket rights. But what does that strategy mean going forward, whether it's talking about NFL Sunday ticket or NBA rights when they mm-hmm. come up in a couple years? What can we expect from you now that you have this new focus on profitability for streaming? We have great partnerships with all the leagues, and if we can get a deal done that's accretive to shareholder value, we'll do it. If not, we won't do it. But are you concerned about some of the tech giants snapping up a lot of those sports rights, which have traditionally been at ESPN? Uh, Actually, I'm not. And the reason I'm not is that I believe that we have a unique proposition that we can offer the leagues, and it plays out. We got new college football rights. We've got new NBA rights, our our, uh, NHL rights. We've got new MLB rights. NBA's coming up. There's some college rights that are out there, Sunday tickets out there. But we've done pretty good lately over the last few years in adding rights. So I'm not worried. So in light of all of this, what you're building in the streaming space, how concerned are you about cord cutting? We've seen consistent, persistent cord cutting. What is this going to do to your business? And how does that impact when you're going to bring some of the content over from linear into direct-to-consumer? And that's one of the key factors that we watch constantly in terms of winning, uh, knowing when to, as I've said in the past, you know, take your foot off the dock and put it onto the boat. Um, we're doing that slow right now. We've got Dancing with the Stars, which we've uh, moved over. 
As you know, there's a, some content that we're moving over to our streaming platforms. Uh, and as the market changes, we'll go ahead and evolve with it. We do watch it very carefully. Uh, we know where that business is headed, but we also know our streaming business is headed. And uh, as evidenced by this last quarter, we've got a proposition both in streaming and direct-to-consumer as well as the linear businesses, which, as you know right now, are kicking off so much cash for us to fund our direct-to-consumer investment. And I know you don't want to lose the linear businesses, which are, you know, the the bread and butter of your profitability. And I'm wondering how concerned you are about the crumbling of the bundle even further, especially as more uh, more content shifts over to streaming, not just on Disney, but across the board. We have such great uh, assets, such great networks, such great propositions uh, in the bundle that I think to some extent we're sort of the, 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 the main factor in terms of how fast that bundle goes where it goes. Mm. When you've got ESPN, which as you know is the 500 pound gorilla in that bundle, we sort of can help determine which way that bundle goes and how fast it goes. So we feel like we have some degree of control of that. Well, that's going to be very interesting to watch. Now, one thing we haven't talked much about is your ad-supported business. Um, Ad-supported streaming service launches in December. How profitable will that ad-supported business be compared to your ad-free Disney Plus? And how valuable will those ads be? We heard Netflix saying that they think that their ads are going to be incredibly valuable on sort of a cost per ad basis. Yeah. Well, no one's got the experience that we do because of our Hulu experience. And uh, this will not, this will, should be margin accretive as we move over to the uh, ad business. Uh, one only has to look at the uh, average per sub uh, advertising revenue that we get on Hulu and you know, think about what that could mean at a Disney Plus standpoint, particularly with the opening price point for Disney Plus with ads. So we believe uh, uh, it will be no worse than uh, uh, neutral. And I think it's got some possibilities. We are uh, uh, really the only folks that uh, I think across the globe have the opportunity to weigh on a lot of history and research and data that we've got because of our work on Hulu. And I think we're going to apply that now to Disney Plus, and I think you'll see great results coming out of it. And how concerned are you about an ad recession? Well, right now we're seeing some resiliency. You know, across our business, we're seeing resiliency, whether it's parks, whether it's streaming, or in the ad business. So, uh, you know, again, we have a unique proposition. Uh, When your content is strong, everything else follows. Pricing for advertising follows, subs follow. Our poo follows, and we're, we're, we're bullish. The ad-supported streaming space is going to get a lot more crowded. Not only are you launching, but Netflix is working to launch. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned about competition from Netflix and others in the space? Well, we always watch competition, but we don't dwell on it, frankly. Again, we have a unique proposition, and we think we're unique in the marketplace. We're uh, a unique proposition. Now, shifting gears over to the parks business, better than expected results um, uh, there, both in terms of spending and also in terms of attendance. But give us some insight into what you're seeing in the consumer just in the past couple of weeks. Um, Do you have any sense of whether or not those numbers and that kind of spending is going to hold up into the fall? Well, for all visibility we have into the future, we're not seeing any softening of our demand. We're really, really pleased with that. I know there's been a lot of concerns about what this would mean with travel and gas prices and airline ticket prices, but we're seeing no uh, softening at all of our demand, and we think this bodes well. Remember that with the lead time for international travel, we haven't even seen our international travel rebound yet. So the numbers that we're posting right now are largely on our domestic audience. And once that comes back, I think that's going to you know, put more demand into our pipeline and uh, 
you know, give us an opportunity to uh, leverage that as well. But what about all the pent-up demand? The fact that there are a lot of families who are going to your parks now that didn't go for the past two years. Once you work through that backlog, do you think next year you're going to see a drop-off because people are only going to be able to spend so much money, especially right. with inflation and everything? We do not. We've got enough data and research to suggest that uh, this is going to be uh, a resilient uh, trend that we're seeing right now and is not going to be something that's going to be a function of some short-term demand because of pent-up uh, uh, travel uh, demand. So, You um, said on the earnings call that you think you have some flexibility in pricing. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you're going to raise prices at the parks again? Well, we always watch our demand. Again, when you're playing a yield game like we are right now and you have the flexibility with our reservation system, well, we can move on a dime. And so we read demand. And if demand goes up, then we have the opportunity to do that. We've got no plans right now to announce uh, in terms of what we're going to do. But again, uh, we operate with a, a surgical knife here. And uh, uh, we're at a level, level of sophistication with our pricing that uh, not only does it maximize shareholder value, but it enables us to provide a value to guests no matter what time of the year they want to come. But a lot of people uh, get frustrated when those prices go up. You get a lot of angry comments on Twitter. But it sounds like another pricing move might be in the works. Well, it's all up to the consumer. If consumer demand keeps up, then uh, we act accordingly. And if uh, we see a softening, which we don't think we're going to see, then we can act accordingly as well. We're very flexible. Uh, it sounds like that. Now, speaking of flexibility, your movie business, um, you've had some flexibility in terms of putting films on Disney Plus versus in theaters. What's your strategy now, especially now that you're going to have this ad-supported tier? Does it change how you're thinking about your theatrical window? It does not change how we're going to think about our theatrical window. Look, we love the theatrical business. It's been great for us. Uh, we have, you know, uh, a, a tremendous legacy of doing big numbers in theaters. Uh, but we also believe that some of the historical windows that we've had uh, are probably unnecessary. And so we're going to have relatively quick windows, but we're going to put our big blockbusters through the theatrical distribution system so we get all the benefits, our shareholders get all the benefits of that, and then quickly go to Disney+. Plus. But there will also be a lot of movies that will go directly to Disney+. Plus. So we talked about from the beginning of the pandemic about flexibility and about our ability to toggle when we read market cues, and that has been the case for the last two and a half years, and that'll be the case in the future. And this is such a complicated art, though, figuring out how and where to put movies and how much time they should be in theaters. Is there any concern that having movies that are your premium movies on Disney Plus and available with ads is going to devalue the movie going experience? Oh, I don't believe so at all. I think it gives more consumer choice. We're all about the consumer, giving the consumer more choice in terms of how they uh, uh, consume Disney movies and uh, uh, at what price point is really going to be a good thing when the consumer's happy, everyone in the value chain's happy. If we do go into a recession, do you think movie going will hold up as it has in prior recessions? Or the fact that there's now all this content available at home, will that be problematic? As you know, I spent my first 20 years in this company on the studio side. And one of the things that we've always seen in a recession or when things get tough is that's a relatively inexpensive uh, treat. Uh, and uh, so I think the movie business is going to be stable. I think it's going to be resilient, just like Disney's resilient and uh, very optimistic in the future, whether it's the media side of the business or the park side of the business. And a final question. When do you plan to reinstate a dividend? Well, you know, uh, that's important to us. Uh, returning uh, 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 to shareholders is an important piece of our overall proposition. Uh, we want to go ahead and deleverage as quickly as possible. Uh, and we're working towards that. And with our great results, 
uh, is giving us the ability, quite frankly, to deleverage a lot quicker than we had thought. So we're optimistic about uh, at some point returning to a dividend uh, and uh, looking forward to you know, that when it when it's possible. Okay, well, we will be watching to find out when that happens. Bob Chapek, thank you so much for thank joining you. us and having us here uh, at the Disney headquarters. Thank you. Deirdre, back Julie, over to you. you covered so much ground there. Uh, great, great interview from ad-supported streaming to parked expansion, sports rights, even dividends at the end there. Uh, meantime, take a look at Upstart shares, getting a bit of a restart on pace to end the week up, more than 15%, now trading almost $10 higher than the street's average price target nearly 33 bucks plus more on why the bears are coming for chip stocks that's later this hour more market action after the break don't go away time for a segment that we're going to call due diligence we're going to talk about ether just two months ago seems to have been the bottom in mid-june ether dipped below a thousand bucks since then, it is up 92%. You might have blinked and missed it. More than 75% in just the last month alone, including double digits this week. So why the surge and why is Ether outpacing its crypto counterparts, including Bitcoin? Well, it is all because of a giant merge event scheduled to take place next month, an upgrade to the second largest digital currency behind Bitcoin that have Ether and crypto bulls talking for at least a year this moment. Have a listen. Right now, it's Ethereum. It's moved a lot, but this this merge is a big deal. It takes the supply of mining that used to constantly sell and actually locks it up uh, in what we would call hodlers and long-term contracts. And so you're going to see the supply-demand imbalance in, in Ethereum, the second biggest crypto, really shift. You know, prices are always set on the margin. And so I think that was the enthusiasm that this merge finally happening uh, is going to continue to draw money into Ethereum. So what's going to change here? Well, it is a combination of Ether's proof-of-work model with its proof-of-stake concept, which means a lot, a lot of technical in the weeds implications. But here's why it matters for you if you're interested in cryptocurrencies. That merge will lead Ether to be more energy efficient, allowing it to process transactions faster and cause a sharp reduction in supply, which could lead to increased demand. That's what Novogratz was just talking about. That is the simple economics and also why you're seeing Ether surge this week with the rest of crypto behind it. The real question for investors is, Neela, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about this too. Is it too late to buy? Is it too much too fast? These are common questions when it comes to crypto, but this is going to be sort of a different, a very momentous event. Yeah, and it's one we've been waiting for a long time. I am firmly in the I will believe it when I see it category on the merge. They've been talking about it forever. But if it happens, it's true. Things like NFT is going to get a lot more energy efficient. A lot of those roadblocks to consumer adoption will go away. The big thing is if it happens, this is a cataclysm for NVIDIA and AMD in the GPU industry. Right now, all that proof of work happens on GPUs. All those miners are going to offload those GPUs right as those companies have new models coming on the market. It's a... It's a bomb waiting to go off on that and side. And they already of the house. have been seeing that that effect, right? So the even yeah, absolutely. More. So interesting. So interesting looking. The ripple effects of that uh, and Ether shares up. Ether not shares. Ether up four percent. JP Morgan out with his topics heading into the fall, calling Amazon its best idea, followed by Uber and Booking Holdings. All three of those names up double digits in the last month. We're back in two. check on Bumble. Shares in the red after cutting annual revenue guidance. More on the outlook for tech and this as the Nasdaq slips into negative territory. Stay with us.
The SMH on pace for its worst year since 2008 after a tough quarter for semis. Uh, the space has been rebounding along with the rest of growth in recent weeks, but some warning we're only seeing the beginning of more pain. Christina Partzanelvelos is live from one of OnSemi's new facilities with more on the slowdown. Christina. Yeah, what it's pretty much chip sectors are facing a crossroads or a crossroad. You have a slowdown in demand, but at the same time, chip companies across the border making promises to spend billions of dollars on U.S. soil to bring build factories. That's why I came to On Semi here in New Hampshire. They have a ribbon cutting, a cutting ceremony just later on this afternoon. But across the board, chip makers are warning and they're giving weaker outlooks. Companies like uh, Western Digital as well as Qualcomm, their stocks dropping at least four percent since those weaker outlooks. You mentioned the SMH, which is down, what, over 20% year-to-date on pace for its worst year since 2008. So no doubt companies are facing uh, tough times. The slowdown is sharper than expected, all while they have to build up capacity here in the United States. You have companies across the board that are promising to spend billions of dollars here in the U.S. And unfortunately, the subsidies, the Chipsack subsidies, are only supposed to cover roughly 30% of the foundry costs, which could be anywhere between 10 and 20 billion dollars. So where is the rest of that money going to come from? You may think, hey, maybe these companies should pivot and focus on more lucrative businesses like auto as well as industrials and cloud. But even those segments are showing cracks. We heard from Micron CFO earlier this week saying that within those three segments, uh, there is an inventory correction. You also had um, from cloud companies like Qualtrics and Snowflake saying there's weaker cloud spending. And lastly, Hymix today saying that they are going to be reducing orders because of a sudden halt in demand. So nonetheless, there is a disconnect between the short-term and the long-term prospects. Deirdre? I'll take it. Christina, thanks so much. And as we head to our last break, keep an eye on Apple today. That stock's up 17% over the last month and just 7% away from that all-time high. Tech Tech is back in a moment. We are uh, uh, really the only folks that uh, I think across the globe have the opportunity to weigh on a lot of history and research and data that we've got because of our work on Hulu. And I think we're going to apply that now to Disney Plus, and I think you'll see great results coming out of it. That was Disney CEO Bob Chapek, who joined us earlier in this hour. He was talking about how Disney plans to win the streaming wars as advertising tiers expand. Nilay, curious for your thoughts here on what this all means for the pressure on Netflix uh, as it gets ready to launch its ad-supported tier. Pressure to launch soon, and also how much do you think they're going to charge? Yeah, I mean, they got Netflix has to cut the price substantially if they're going to add ads to a user experience that has historically never had ads. They've got to find a reason to make people watch ads, which is very hard. I think Disney has an easier lift here um, <clears throat> because they're still focused on growth. They've, they can initiate new audiences uh, into a product that they're not familiar with the way Netflix really can't. I, however, am sticking the Bluey elasticity <laughs> hypothesis, which is there's infinite demand for Bluey at any price. I don't even know what Bluey is, Neil. I, I think I'm missing it's, it's out like on something. It's like the best kid show on TV. I watched okay, like two I'm, episodes a day. I'm convinced. I'll, I'll take a look. Um, I also liked how he said, it's that brand power. JPEG said, when your content is strong, everything else will follow. We'll see if profits are the same. Meanwhile, guys, NASDAQ hovering around the flat line. Neil, thanks for your help today. Halftime report starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.